man. I am so thankful that we sang that song, that last song this morning, uh, because because of the truth in it, that he never lets go of us through the calm and through the storm. He never lets go of us. And I'm thankful that, that there are people around us at First Baptist who are living out that truth in the midst of some very difficult situations, in the midst of some serious storms, in the midst of some profound darkness. There are all kinds of examples around us of people who are living out and declaring with their lives the truth that he never lets go of us. And there is a day that is coming where there will be no more pain, there will be no more trouble. The light is coming. And, and I'm thankful for those people. And some of them are here today and some of them aren't. Some of them are listening to us from home because they can't get out today. And I am thankful for their testimony of the truth uh, of, of God's word, that he never leaves us, never forsakes us. And it is good for those who love him, right? It's good. Do you have your Bibles this morning? Joshua chapter 21 is where you need to go. Last week we saw uh, the cities of refuge, nine quick verses. We used a little marathon uh, illustration last week. We said it's just an easy nine. And, and I told you you would be the first ones to KFC and I lied. I lied, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We relate to KFC. I'm, I'm sorry for that. It was a good nine, though, right? It was a good nine, and it was worth the extra time that we took. We saw in that text the justice of God's justice. We were reminded that we have to understand his justice, his righteousness, his wrath, his judgment. In order to understand the beauty of his grace and his mercy, the more we understand the one, the more we understand the other. We also saw in this text an important lesson about the sanctity of human life that God is very concerned about human life, so much that he protects it, so much that he gives all of these special rules and obligations that surround human life that do not surround animal life. We are alone created in the image of God, and uh, life should be seen as precious and protected uh, at all costs. We also talked about the death of the high priest, that this one who took the life of another person could not be absolved, could not be truly forgiven and sent back to his home until the death of the high priest at that time. And I told you we can't read words like that in the Old Testament and not think about Jesus. We can't just read about the death of a high priest and not make the connection that the author of Hebrews makes, that Jesus is our great high priest who died for us, that we might be reconciled to God. And then finally we saw that the hope of refuge in these cities was not just available to a certain group of people. It wasn't just available for Israel. It was available even for the stranger who was traveling through, even for the one who was just passing through. And I told you that the hope of the gospel is not just for the group of people who are gathered here today, but it's for all kinds of people. And it is our job to take the gospel to all kinds of people, right? All right, this week... We go to chapter 21, and we'll use another marathon illustration uh, to talk about this passage, because this is kind of the last really difficult, tedious passage of Joshua. It's going to break after this, and it's going to be just a ton of fun as we go into chapter 22 and 23, and we wrap things up. It's going to be glorious. Uh, I, in the marathons I've run, I've, I've come to learn that the toughest part of a marathon is miles 20 to 25, and I'll tell you why. 20 to 25 is so difficult because your second wind is already gone. It's come and it's gone, and, and there's not a third wind. It, there's just not one. And, and, and your body is hurting, your feet are blistered, there's a toenail that's about to come off at this point. It is just all pain. And no one gathers at mile 20 to 25 to cheer you on. They're just not. They're, all those people are at the finish line ready to cheer you on there. And so it is lonely and it is difficult, but if you can get through that... When you get to mile 25, that last mile and a quarter, there are all kinds of people. You can't feel anything. There's another shot of adrenaline, and it is glorious and marvelous. And that starts next week. Don't you want to get there? Don't you want to get there? Yeah, we want to get there because it's fun. Then you, you throw your arms up, and you puff your chest out, and you have just run a marathon. But you got to get through miles 20 to 25 to do that. 
And that's where we're at today. It's tough today. I'll be honest with you. When we talk about the inheritance for the Levites, which God has already told us they don't really get an inheritance, that their inheritance is the Lord. And then in chapter 21, he outlines all of these cities that are given to them as an inheritance. And it is detailed. It is tedious. And it is tough. But we're going to do it because God has given it to us for a reason, right? And there are some huge lessons to learn, especially at the end of chapter 21. Oh, man, it is so cool. Right at the end, when the author kind of brings it together, summarizes what we have seen already in Joshua, prepares the way for what's going to happen in the next couple of chapters, that last couple of verses of chapter 21 are absolutely dynamite. And I can't wait to get there. So check it out, Joshua chapter 21. We're going to take it by chunks today. um, and, And the first chunk starts in verse 1. It says, Then the heads of households of the Levites approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel. They spoke to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, saying, The Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to live in, with their pasture lands for our cattle. So the sons of Israel gave the Levites from their inheritance these cities with their pasture lands, according to the command of the Lord. Then the lot came out for the families of the Kohathites, And the sons of Aaron the priest who were of the Levites received 13 cities by lot from the tribe of Judah and from the tribe of Benjamin, uh, I mean, from the tribe of the Simeonites and from the tribe of Benjamin. Let's pray together. God, thank you uh, for your word today. Thank you for the time that we've had together already in praise and in worship. And God, we know that that worship doesn't stop when we start preaching, um, but we continue to worship you as we listen to your word. And then we certainly continue to worship you as we respond to it, as we leave this place God, I pray that you help us today as we study. Uh, we, we don't want to participate in, in some mere intellectual exercise. We, we don't just want to be involved in scholastics. Uh, we want to understand your word clearly uh, so that it changes our lives, so that we uh, respond rightly in obedience and faith to your word. God, we need your help for this. We need your Holy Spirit to teach us. We need your Holy Spirit to remind us of things we've already been taught. Uh, we need your Holy Spirit to shed light on this text um, so that we may follow you better and uh, and the world will be different because of it. God, help us today uh, for your own glory, uh, for your own sake. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so the first thing that I want you to see in this text is the boldness of the Levites. And this is something we've seen a few times already. We've seen a group of people or a person in particular come before Joshua, come before the leaders of the people, and make kind of a bold claim based on a promise that God had made beforehand. Do you remember who did this? Can you remember some of the people who've done this already in Joshua? Say it again. The daughters of Zelophehad? Absolutely. You just said daughters, though. Right? That's what you meant. The daughters of Zelophehad, right? They come before, they come before the Lord. <laughs> they, come, they come before Joshua. They come before Eliezer. And they say, listen, Moses promised us this. God has already told us that we could have this inheritance. We know that we're girls and that we shouldn't really receive this inheritance. But we have already talked about this and God has already made a promise. They don't go to Joshua and Eliezer in some kind of proud, arrogant confidence. They go to Joshua and Eliezer with confidence, not in themselves, in their goodness, but confidence based on God's word, that God had said this. God has already told us this, and so they trust that it will come to pass. We saw when Joe preached, man, that was a long time ago, Joe, wasn't it? It was a long time ago, and uh, he preached about Caleb doing the same thing, that God has already made this promise. And so Caleb goes before Eliezer and before Joshua and before the people and claims the promise that God has already made. And what you see in this text is that the Levites do the same thing. Right? They're, they're not coming saying, hey, listen, we're Levites. We're special. We're special people. And, and they're not coming and saying, hey, we're Levites, and you didn't give us a particular land. 
We feel left out. You didn't give us borders. You didn't give us uh, a particular land. They come before the people, the leaders, and they say, listen, God has promised to take care of us. God has already promised through the commandment of Moses. God has promised that we would have cities and that those cities would have pasture land so that we could let our flocks uh, graze on those lands. And so they come and they say, God has made this promise and that promise will be fulfilled. I think the application today is the same as it's been every time we've seen something like this. It's that God has made promises to us, right? God has made promises to us. And when we come before him, we don't need to come before him with timidity or with fear. We come before him with boldness, right? Based on his promises that what he has said, he will do. I remember in Mississippi, we did little children's musical. I don't even remember what it was called, but one of the lines that kept coming up in it was, what the Lord has said, he will do. And they kept saying it over and over and over again, and it's true, right? If God has said something, he's going to do it, right? If he has said, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, and you call upon the name of the Lord, guess what? He'll be saved. What God has said, he will do, and we can trust him every time. And that's what the Levites do. They come before the people, and they say, look at it in verse 2. They spoke, that is, the Levites spoke to them, them is Eliezer, Joshua, and the elders. They spoke to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, saying, The Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to live in with their pasture lands for our cattle. So they are basing this on what God has already said, not what they think, not what they think is right, not what they think is fair, but what God has already said. He has made a promise, and he will fulfill it. If you look at it in verse 4, you'll see another interesting point before we move on to the next chunk. It says, the lot came out for the families of the Kahothites, the sons of Aaron the priest, who were of the Levites, received 13 cities by lot from the tribe of Judah and from the tribe of the Simeonites and from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, what, what you need to see in that is that the descendants of Aaron are, are given a place of preeminence. Even amongst the Levites, the, the descendants of Aaron are, are given this special place of prominence because they are going to be the priests. They aren't Levites that are serving kind of the menial tasks around the temple. They are the priests that are actually offering the sacrifices, that are actually acting in many ways as a mediator between God and man. So of the Levites, the descendants of Aaron kind of stand out as extremely special when it comes to all of this. All right? Next thing, next chunk starts in verse 5. And what you see in verse 5 is kind of a general summary that is going to be outlined in detail starting in verse 9. So here's the broad outline, the broad skeleton outline. It says, The rest of the sons of Kohath received ten cities by lot from the families of the tribe of Ephraim and from the tribe of Dan and from the half-tribe of Manasseh. The sons of Gershon received thirteen cities by lot from the families of the tribe of Issachar and from the tribe of Asher and from the tribe of Naphtali and from the half-tribe of Manasseh in Bashan. The sons of Merari According to their families, received 12 cities from the tribe of Reuben and from the tribe of Gad and from the tribe of Zebulun. Now the sons of Israel gave by lot to the Levites these cities with their pasture lands as the Lord had commanded through Moses. Again, at the end of that section, we see this happens as the Lord commanded, right? In obedience and in submission to him. Not according to someone's good plan, but according to the Lord's commandments. What you need to see in this is this broad outline that these families, these descendants of Levi, are given these certain cities. And you're going to see exactly what those cities are later on. The point is this, the big point of application that you need to get. And, and I'll be honest with you, it's hard to preach this because it's going to sound very self-serving. But the point of application is this. The people who serve God's people, the men who lead God's people, who serve God's people, who serve the Lord in ministry, should be taken care of by God's people. Does that make sense? 
that the Levites are going to give their lives in service to God. They're going to give their lives in service to God's people as they worship God, as they serve God. And those men should be taken care of by God's people. We see this outlined here. You're going to see it in a little while in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul is going to say very clearly that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. In other words, God's people should take care of the leaders of God's people. Does that make sense? Do you see why that's a little bit uh, a little bit difficult for me to preach? Because really one point of application today is you should give me a raise. That's, and it says it. It says it in the text, right? If it, uh, it doesn't take, take long to make that jump. The principle is that when someone is serving God, giving their lives to serve God, that God's people should take care of them. And I'll show you that in a little while from 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in, in more particular. Okay, So that's the second section, just a brief uh, skeleton outline of how this distribution of cities is going to go. Now in verse 9, we get the details of it all. Get the details of it all, and it's easy to get lost in this. Uh, we're going to make a couple of observations along the way, and then an application at the end. Start in verse 9. It says, They gave these cities which were here mentioned by name from the tribe of the sons of Judah and from the tribe of the sons of Simeon. They were for the sons of Aaron, one of the families of the Kohothites, of the sons of Levi, for the lot was theirs first. Again, we see the emphasis on Aaron's kids, right? They get listed first. Even as it's detailed, they get listed first. It says, Thus they gave them Kiriath Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah with its surrounding pasture lands. Now that should catch your attention too, right? For a couple of reasons. One is that that city, Kiriath Arba, namely Hebron, was listed last week as one of the cities of refuge, right? It is the first city that's given to the Levites, particularly to the children of Aaron, and it is one of the cities of refuge, and this is fitting, right? That a city of refuge would be a priestly city as well. That fits, right? But Kiriath Arba is also the city that is given to Caleb, right? Given to Caleb as an inheritance, and that gets pretty difficult, what do you mean it was given to Caleb? God said, I'm going to give it to Caleb. It's the city he wants. Anak, the giant, lived there, right? And Caleb went in and slew them. And I'm going to give that city to Caleb. But then here it says this will also be one of the Levites' cities. And what you need to see is that when a city is given to the Levites, that doesn't mean that they take full control of it. It simply means that they are allowed to dwell there. That's one of the cities that the Levites live in. And as we study this passage as a whole, you'll see that they're scattered all over the place. That the Levites are just all over the place. A little bit in this tribe, a little bit in that tribe, a little bit here, a little bit there. Levites are everywhere. And the point of that is that they, they exist to help people in their relationship with God. They exist to teach people about God and how to come to Him in worship. And we need folks who are doing that all over the place, right? It's kind of a parallel with the Great Commission, isn't it? Jesus says, go. Go and make disciples of one particular little city. No, go make disciples of all the nations. Teach them, baptize them, tell them what I've commanded, right? And he says, I'll be with you when you do it. And that's kind of what's going on here with the Levites. They're going to be scattered about. First place we get mentioned is Hebron. Then in verse 12 it says, But the fields of that city and its villages they gave to Caleb the son of Jephunneh as his possession. So that helps reconcile what we've got going on as this city is a city of refuge. It's also Caleb's inheritance and it is given to the Levites. Verse 13 says, So to the sons of Aaron the priests they gave Hebron, the city of refuge for the manslayer with its pasture lands, and Libnah with its pasture lands, and Jatir with its pasture lands, and Eshtomoa with its pasture lands, and Holon with its pasture lands, and Debir with its pasture lands, and Ain with its pasture lands, and Juta with its pasture lands, and Beth Shemesh with its pasture lands. Nine cities from these two tribes. 
from the tribe of Benjamin, Gibeon with its pasture lands, Geba with its pasture lands, Ananoth with its pasture lands, and Alman with its pasture lands, four cities. All the cities of the sons of Aaron, the priests, were 13 cities with their pasture lands. Okay, you get it? All of these cities come with what? Pasture lands. Why do we need pasture? Why do the Levites need pasture lands? Yeah, for their herds, for their livestock. They need a place for them to graze because they don't have land of their own, right? They don't have a land of their own that they can send them to, so they need some land around these cities. God's people taking care of the leaders, right? That's what we see here. Then, in verse 20, it says, The cities from the tribe of Ephraim were allotted to the families of the sons of Kohath, the Levites, even to the rest of the sons of Kohath. They gave to Shechem, they gave them Shechem, the city of refuge for the manslayer, with its pasture lands in the hill country of Ephraim, and Gezer with its pasture lands, and Kibzaim, Kibzaim with its pasture lands, and Beth Haran with its pasture lands, four cities. From the tribe of Dan, Eltaki with its pasture lands, Gibbethon with its pasture lands, Ijalon with its pasture lands, Gath Ramon with its pasture lands, four cities. What, is it funny? The whole choir is laughing. From the half-tribe of Manasseh, they allotted Tanakh with its pasture lands and Gath Ramon with its pasture lands, two cities. All the cities with their pasture lands for the families of the rest of the sons of Kohath were ten. To the sons of Gershon, one of the families of the Levites, from the half-tribe of Manasseh, they gave Golan and Bashan, the city of refuge for the manslayer, with its pasture lands. And Be-Eshterah with its pasture lands, two cities. From the tribe of Issachar, they gave Kishion with its pasture lands, Dabaroth with its pasture lands, Jarmuth with its pasture lands, Enganim with its pasture lands, four cities. From the tribe of Asher, they gave Mishal with its pasture lands, Abdon with its pasture lands, Hilkoth with its pasture lands, and Rehob with its pasture lands, four cities. From the tribe of Naphtali, they gave Kadesh and Galilee, the city of refuge for the manslayer, with its pasture lands, and Hamoth Dor, with its pasture lands, and Cathan with its pasture lands, three cities. All the cities of the Gershonites, according to their families, were 13 cities with their pasture lands. I told you, miles 20 to 25 are tough, right? There's, there's usually a water break right about here. In fact, I thought about that. I thought about getting some Gatorade and passing it out at this point. <laughs> we're going to keep going. To the families of the sons of Mirari, the rest of the Levites, they gave from the tribe of Zebulun, Jokneam, with its pasture lands, and Kartah with its pasture lands, Dimnah with its pasture lands, Nahalal with its pasture lands, four cities. From the tribe of Reuben they gave Bezer with its pasture lands, and Jahaz with its pasture lands, Kedmoth with its pasture lands, and Mephath with its pasture lands, four cities. From the tribe of Gad they gave Ramoth and Gilead, the city of refuge for the manslayer, with its pasture lands, and Mahanaim with its pasture lands, Heshbon with its pasture lands, Jazer with its pasture lands, Four cities in all. All these were the cities of the sons of Merari, according to their families, the rest of the families of the Levites, and their lot was 12 cities. All right? All of that. All of that to tell us that God's people are, take care, are taking care of the leaders of God's people. That these guys, these Levites, are going to give their lives in service to God, in service to God's people. And God's people, in return, take care of them. They give them cities to live in, live in. And they give them what is, in reality, the very best pasture lands. The pasture lands that surround the cities, right around the cities. That means that they don't have to go far away to take their cattle or their sheep to pasture. They are just right outside the gates of the city. 
So they are given kind of prime real estate. Why? Because they are giving their lives in something that is great, something that is helpful, something that is good for the people. We don't want these Levites having to travel two hours to get to their cattle, right? We want them to be able to go right outside the gate, take care of their cattle, come back in because they are dealing in spiritual matters. They are dealing with eternal matters. And so we want to take care of them and free them up to do this. We see this in the New Testament, do we not? We, we see it in Acts chapter 6. We see it in Acts chapter 6 when there's a problem in the early church. There's a problem in the early church because there's some debate, some frustration between one group of Christians and another group of Christians saying, our widows aren't getting enough food. Our widows aren't being taken care of in the daily service of food. And the apostles at one point say, listen, you need to find some guys from among you who can take care of this. You need to find some guys, appoint some men from among you who can take care of the table service so that we apostles can devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. In other words, they say that we can't, we can't not waste our time, but we can't use our time on these things because our time needs to be devoted to these spiritual things, teaching the word and praying. Does that make sense? And so we're going we're gonna to free those guys up so that they can do that. I tell you what, when I study this passage and when I study in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and I think about all the guys I know who work in ministry and are what we call bivocational ministers, man, they are my heroes. They are absolutely my heroes. Guys who give themselves in service to God's people and also are a, a postman or also are a coal miner or also are a farmer. I think, how do you do that? How do you do that? Invest yourself completely in God's people in service to Him and also work another job to take care of, care of your family. I think the model that we see laid out in Scripture is that God's people would take care of them. God's people would provide for them and, and free them up so that they can give themselves completely to the service to God. Does that make sense to you guys? And what we see in this text, all of these details about all of these cities, number one, is clear pattern of God's people taking care of their leaders. We're going to give them all these cities and we're going to give them the prime pasture land. The second lesson we learn in all of this is, like I said earlier, it's a parallel with the Great Commission. Turn over, if you want to, to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, the last words Jesus speaks to his disciples in Matthew's gospel. He says to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He doesn't intend, God doesn't intend for us just to gather together and separate ourselves completely from the culture. He has called us to go out to go out into the culture and make disciples. And that's what he's doing here with the Levites. He's not gathering them all together in Jerusalem. He's not gathering them all together in Shiloh and saying, all right, all you Levites, all you spiritual men, and especially you priests, come live in this place. He scatters them out. He scatters them out so that they can teach, so that they can lead people who are far and wide. And that's what we are doing today still. We're being scattered out. Why? So that we can teach people about God, so that we can teach them about the gospel, so that we can proclaim the goodness of God's grace through the Lord Jesus Christ, right? This is a pattern. This is a pattern that we is being fulfilled in our own lives. Look at verse 41. Summary statement of what we've seen so far. It says, All the cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the sons of Israel were 48 cities. 48 cities with their pasture lands. These cities each had its surrounding pasture lands. Thus it was with all cities. So that's what the Levites get. 48 cities for this group of Levites. Then look what happens in verse 43. This is gold. 
This is gold. You should circle this. You should underline it. You should highlight this passage in your text. In fact, one commentator I read said this is the most important paragraph in the entire book of Joshua. I would debate him on that. I don't think he's right, but he said it. In fact, one of my commentaries says that every week. He says this is the most important passage in the whole book. Verse 43, it's good stuff. It says, So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, and no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. That's good stuff, isn't it? At the end of all of this detail, at the end of all of this, we've gone from this city to that city and this tribe to that tribe, and we've gotten confused and we've gotten lost and we can't keep up with it on the map. Here is the summary. If you didn't get any of the rest of that, you can get this, right? What do you see in this text? Number one, what you see here is that Yahweh gave Israel all the land. He gave it to them, right? They didn't take it for themselves. He gave it to them. Look what it says in verse 43. It says, So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers. Not only has he given it to them, he has given it to them in fulfillment of a promise. A promise he made to their fathers. A promise that goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis, right? He has done it. He has given it to them. Number two, what you see here is that Israel took possession of it and lived in it. It says this at the end of verse 43. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had swore to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. What we see here is that tension that's been unfolding all throughout this book, right? God has given it to them, but they've got to go and take it for themselves. They've got to go and possess it. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, you remember Joshua kind of got on to the tribes, and he said, how long are you going to stand around? How long are you going to stand around and not go in and possess what God has already given to you? He kind of prods them a little bit to get them to go. And what we see, the first two points in this passage, number one, God's given it to them. Number two, they've gone and possessed it. They've gone and possessed it and they've settled in it. They are inhabiting the land. And this is a huge fulfillment of God's faithfulness to his people. Number three, it says that God gives them rest on every side. Look at verse 44. It says, And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. In other words, the battles are over. The battles are over. They are in their land. They possess it. It is their place. God has destroyed all of their enemies. They have come into the land. They have possessed it. And they have settled in it. And there is rest. Rest is one of the key themes of Joshua. Right? The rest of the promised land. They've been working, they've been wandering, they've been fighting, and now, finally, they come into the promised land and they can rest. And the author of Hebrews plays on that image to say that if Joshua gave them a rest, if Joshua provided for them some kind of rest, then Jesus gives us an even better rest, right? That in Christ there is a better promised land. In Christ there is a better, more complete rest where we simply trust in Him. We cease from our strivings. We cease from our labors. And we trust in His labor. We trust in His striving. And we enjoy peace and rest on every side because of Him, right? This picture of rest on every side is not fulfilled here in Joshua. It's fulfilled in Christ. We've got to see that. We've got to see that the rest that Josh is speaking of is, is a small rest. And Christ provides the bigger, real rest. And then number four is this. I like this one the best. It says, nothing that Yahweh has promised, he has left undone. Look at verse 45. 
It says, not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Not even one little detail. Not, not even one little thing did he leave out. He got them all, right? And he still does that, doesn't he? He doesn't, he doesn't just get most of it. He doesn't make a promise and say, yeah, I got most of it. He doesn't say, I'll mow the yard, I'll take care of the grass, and mow the yard and not weedy. That's what I do. And I say, well, I did most of it. I mowed most of the grass. Well, if you mow the whole yard and you don't weed eat, it looks like you haven't done anything, right? In fact, it makes it worse, Laura says. God never leaves it unfulfilled. He never says, I, I did most of what I promised to you. I took care of 90% of it. He does it all. In fact, one of the neat things to do is take your red crayon or whatever and go back through verses 43 to 45 and circle the word all or every. God has done it all. And I love verse 45. It says, not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. And the same is true for us today. God has not made a promise to us that he leaves unfulfilled. God has not made a promise about Jesus Christ that was left unfulfilled. All of the prophecies about Jesus coming have been fulfilled. They have all been fulfilled. And all of the prophecies about Jesus' second coming will be fulfilled. And all of the promises that he has made to us are sure. And we can trust them. He hasn't left one single thing out. We can trust him completely. This picture in Joshua is a small picture of the bigger picture of the gospel. We've got to see that all the time. God is faithful. He is always faithful. And the only proper response to his faithfulness is worship. The only proper response to verses 43 to 45 is to say God is good and, and, and to praise his name and to thank him and worship him for all that he is and all that he does, right? We, we don't just read a, a passage like verse 43 to 45 and we say, that's right, true. We, we don't just read it like that and say, I, I agree. I agree that God did all this. We read a passage like this and we say, yeah, woof. Praise the Lord, right? Read it again and see if something like that doesn't stir in your heart. It says so. After, and, and remember, trace that back to all that we've talked about for the last six months. We've talked about a lot of stuff in here. And it says so. The Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers. And they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And we worship him and we praise him. I'm telling you, the only proper response to good doctrine, the only proper response to the truth of Scripture is worship. We, we don't just agree. We don't just agree. We don't just say that's true. We praise him because it's true. We praise him because he is good. We praise him because he is faithful. I've got four applications today and then we're done. Number one is this. Based on the Levites' bold approach to the leaders and their bold request for cities to be given to them, I tell you that we should draw near with confidence to the throne of grace because of Jesus Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. We've turned here a lot of times already. This is not a new point. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 says this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, 
because of Jesus. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, we come before God just like the Levites came before Joshua. Just like the Levites came before Eliezer and, and, and the leaders of the people. They came with confidence because God had made a promise. And I'm telling you, we come before God with confidence because of Jesus Christ, right? Not because of our righteousness, not because of our goodness, not because of our intelligence. We come to God with confidence because Jesus is our high priest who has died for us and has brought us together with God, right? We come with confidence, not with fear and trembling, with healthy reverence and respect, but with boldness because of Jesus Christ. Application number two is that you, we, as God's people, should take care of the folks who teach us, or the folks who lead us. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I really want you to turn there. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. God's people should take care of God's servants. That's the point here. And you do. By the way, this is not a condemnation. This is not a rebuke. You do this. Thank you for doing this. I think my family thanks you for doing this. First Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of that flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it is written. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If he sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So, listen to this, this is a summary statement. So, also, the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Does that make sense? Pretty clear principle there at the end, right? That those who who uh, proclaim the gospel get their living from the gospel. The interesting thing about this is, as bold as Paul is to say all of this, he constantly says, I'm not doing it. <laughs> I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that to you. You're not getting that deal today. Paul says constantly, he says, I'm not going to do it. But he always comes back and says, but the principle still holds true. That the folks who serve you should be taken care of by you. Free them up so they can serve you more. Free them up so they don't have to worry about these other things. Free them up so that they can preach the gospel to you and teach you about God, teach you about his commandments, teach you about worship, teach you about the gospel. Free them up so that they can do that. I think what you are doing here at First Baptist Church is a good thing. It's a biblical thing. Keep up the good work is what I want to say to you. God's people take care of God's servants. Number four. Number three. And this one's a little bit more difficult. One of the lessons we learn from the Levites in Joshua is that 
they don't really have a home. They don't have a land to call their own. They're given these cities, but they're not given those cities as an inheritance. They're not given those cities permanently. It's basically, it's basically telling the people of those cities, you've got to open up your doors and let the Levites dwell among you. They're not given possession of those cities. They're basically given access to those cities. Does that make sense? In fact, if you go back to chapter 13, chapter 13 of, of Joshua, you read this at the very end. At the very end of chapter 13, it says this. These are the territories which Moses apportioned for an inheritance in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan at Jericho to the east. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses did not give an inheritance. The Lord, the God of Israel, is their inheritance, as he had promised to them. Make sense? So they don't have an earthly home. They don't have a place that they call their own. They don't have a place where they put down roots and they call their own. They are basically sojourners for their whole life. And one of the lessons we learn from the Levites is that it is good to invest our time, invest our energy, put down our roots in something that is eternal and not something that is temporary. It is better to have a home that is eternal than a home that is temporary, right? It is better to have a place in heaven than a place on the earth, right? Because this deal is passing away. Life is fleeting, life is passing, life is fragile. And we learn that a little bit from the Levites. And we learn it a little more from James, a passage that Joe preached at baccalaureate the other day. James chapter 4 verse 13 says this, Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. We need to recognize, even from the Levites, that life is short. Life is short. And the reality is, we're just strangers passing through this land, right? Isn't there an old song that goes like that, Laura? This earth is not my home. I'm just a stranger passing through. How's the rest of it go? If heaven's not my home, Lord... you want to sing it, Mr. Leonard? <laughs> R- render that song for us? It's true, right? It's true. We're just strangers passing through this land. This is not our home, is it? Our citizenship is in heaven. And that is eternal and everlasting. And so if we're going to invest in something, we invest in that. We pour our lives into that. We give ourselves to that. Don't give yourself to the things of this earth. It's all going to be destroyed someday. All going to be destroyed. And the last application is this. Based on that last portion of Joshua chapter 21... When it talks about all the faithfulness of God, all that he has done, I'm telling you, when we know him, when we know the truth, the only proper response is to praise him. And I think this is also true for the truth of the gospel. That if we know the truth of the gospel, if we know that we are sinners, if we know that we are sinners and we deserve nothing but wrath and anger from God, if we know that even in that condition God loves us and sent Jesus to die for us as our substitute, if we know that Jesus really did die for us, that he really took our sin and really suffered the wrath that we deserve, if we know that he died in our place, was buried, and rose again, if we know that we can be forgiven of sins by grace through faith in him, if we know that salvation comes through Jesus, our response should not be, I know. (laughs) Our response to all of that truth should not just be, yeah, that's right. Our response to the truth of the gospel should be praise to God, right? One, One of my favorite preachers is on this kick right now where he talks about theology, Theology should never stop at theology. Theology should always translate to doxology. 
that our understanding, our right understanding of the truth should always translate into praise to God. It shouldn't just stay right understanding of truth. I'm telling you, if we get through Joshua, and, and I hope we do, if we get through Joshua, if we get through Joshua, I hope we don't just walk away saying, I know, I know about the cities of refuge. And I know about the Levite cities that were given to them and how Caleb's city and, and Aaron's city are the same. And I know about the battles that were won. And I know about all that. I hope that's not the way you come out of this, right? I hope you come out of this saying, I know that, and God is glorious and wonderful, and I want to sing to Him, and I want to praise Him, and I want to follow Him, and I want to obey Him, right? That it, that it leads to praise to God. We don't study for studying's sake. We don't study so that you can answer questions in trivial pursuit. We study so that you follow God, right? So that you know Him, so that you praise Him. It's the way it is with the gospel. Don't just know. I think there are a lot of people here that know the gospel. You could recite the gospel, but your response to it is simply, I know it. And it's not, I love it. It's not, I praise him for it. It's not doxology. It's not praise. It's simply knowledge. And I'm telling you, knowledge is not enough to save you. Knowledge is not enough to save you. James tells us that the demons have knowledge. The demons have knowledge. The demons know about God. The demons know about Jesus. But they tremble because there's no hope for them. I hope that you know God and that you love him and that you follow him and that you praise him. Let's stand together and pray. God, thank you for time here in your word. Thank you for the truths that you have taught us and help us to respond rightly to that truth. God, I pray that we don't walk out of here cold, indifferent scholars, but we walk out of here passionate, zealous disciples of Christ knowing the truth, praising you for it, and declaring it to everyone we come in contact with. God, thank you for the hope that is in Jesus Christ and in Jesus alone. Help us, God. Help us all to respond rightly to the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.